Welcome to Gu Dao Jingxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Taoism to discuss their timeless wisdom and how to apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, a practicing psychotherapist, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach, David Wong. Morning, David. Good morning, Ian. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. I know today we're going to keep we're going to stick with our format of every other episode. We do the next chapter in um, Tao Te Ching, and today that's chapter twelve. Which the theme of that it talks a lot about the the senses, but really it's it's about moderation. If if we were really going to put a label on it, do you do you agree with that that summary as far as the theme of this chapter, or how would you summarize this chapter's theme? Yes, I think this chapter uh, is a very timely one. I would say because we are bombarded with all kinds of stimuluses, you know, all around us. So how to navigate and how to strike, you know, how to achieve that balance. Is very important. Great, yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about moderation. Just recognizing how Im- important it is in my own life. So, I'm wondering if if you would be willing to start off by reading the Chinese chapter. Yeah, I'd be um, happy to. Wu se ling ren mu mang, wu ying ling ren er long. 五位令人口爽，时成田略，令人心发狂。难得之祸，令人行访。是以圣人为父，不为目。故去彼，取子。Thank you very much. Sure. So for people who maybe listen to us for the first time, we do like to read the the chapter in Chinese and then we do the translation in English and then do a discussion. So we're going to do that now. I want to do something a little different this week. And if it's fun, maybe we can do it more often, but I actually want to read three different translations today from three different books. They, um, have a different style. I think they have a different purpose. The authors that wrote them, I think they were going, they had different aims. And so it will be interesting to get your reaction on, on each of these three translations. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay. So here's the first one. I'm not going to say which translation they are until after I've read all, all three. And gotten your reaction. The five colors make our eyes blind. The five tones make our ears deaf. The five flavors make our mouths numb. Riding and hunting make our minds wild. Hard to get goods make us commit crimes. Thus, the rule of the sages favors the stomach over the eyes. Thus, they pick this over that. That's one. Okay. Here's the next one. The five colors make people lose their sight. 
The five tones make people lose their hearing. The five flavors make people lose their taste. Excessive racing and chasing make people lose their minds. Hard to get objects make people lose their way. The wise man, for those reasons, acts for his stomach and not for his eyes. He attends to contentment and not to desire. He lets go of the latter and takes hold of the former. Last one. The five colors blind the eyes of man. The five musical notes deafen the ears of man. The five flavors dull the taste of man. Horse racing, hunting, and chasing madden the minds of man. Rare valuable goods keep their owners awake at night. Therefore, the sage provides for the belly and not for the eye. Hence, he rejects the one and accepts the other. I would say the second one is, mm. is my preferred version. Okay. So that one, it's actually a, a new version that I just got. Um, a listener recommended. That one was from Benjamin Hoff, who he wrote um, The Tao of Pooh, which was a really popular Taoist book back in the 90s. And he did do a lot of research and he does try to study the Chinese characters and try to do a translation based upon that. I don't get the sense that he necessarily speaks Chinese. When I read the book itself, um, he uses an older romanization. I, I don't know if it's the Wade Giles or, or a different one. It, it's hard for me to read because he doesn't use pinyin, which actually does approximate how you would actually say something in Chinese. So when I read those older romanizations, I honestly can't even read them because it's not how you would say anything in Chinese. So um, not not sure what um, his take on the actual Chinese language is or what his relationship to it is, but that's what he's aiming for. And that's the one you picked as a yes. the translation that you you liked. Yes. The the other one was um, the first one was Red Pines translation, which generally I, I think is a, a pretty good one. Um, and then the last one was from the Wisdom of Lao Tzu, the Lin Yutang one from back in the 40s, which tends to be overall probably my favorite book overall. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The, this one, it was kind of repetitive and didn't have much. It kind of had, was a dry translation. Mm -hmm. In the uh, Chinese literature, when it comes to uh, translation, especially during the modern time, I remember one of the scholars used uh, three criteria uh, for evaluating you know, the quality uh, of translation. Uh, it, it goes something like this, xing, like, uh, like the um, trust, like faithfulness. Hmm. So whether yeah. you stick to the original text in, in some way, mm -hmm. uh, ah means 
uh, click. It mm. means like a deeper meaning. It's really like it connects with the original writer when mm. you translating version. That's that's da da means arriving or reach. Mm. And the, the last one is ya means uh, great uh, grace. So it's really mm. the, the language itself. So xing da ya mm. uh, are the the, the the Chinese like scholars when they judge like for example they they sometimes they translate in modern times they started to translate like say Darwin's you know works or some mm. other like Adam Smith's work mm-hmm. so when it's translated into Chinese the ver- early version it's actually in uh, uh, in, in in the classic Chinese not the Hua mm. so they kind of judge the author's translation by looking at whether, you know, it's the original idea of Adam Smith, you know, how the, how it sound, you know, things like that. So that would be xiangxin de xin. Xiangxin de xin, yeah, xiangxin de xin. It means, basically it means, the, the literally, that, mm. you know, you're not going too far. So, for example, yeah. in this uh, translation, I think for both Ling Yu Tang and Red Pine, I think they, they're, Doing a good job of sti- sticking to the original, you know, text and structure mm-hmm. of the sentence. Yeah, so that's that's pretty good. Uh, the reason I like the second one is I think it resonates. The translation it didn't go too far from mm-hmm. original text, but it's not a literal translation. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the language, the the rhythm, and also the especially the res- re- uh, resonance, like I. You know, when I hear the second version, it resonates with me because it it, it lets me just to kind of connect to, uh, you know, our life, our way of life in modern mm-hmm. days. That's what exactly what what we are going to talk about today. And and let's get into that. I do want to ask one more thing, just because I, I really think that's an interesting concept. Shindaya um, and um, of the three, I mean, my my intuition is that Sheen is the most important, and that's why it's first. Are they listed in order of importance, or is it spo- or what's your take on that? Is there is one more important than the other? Um, it's 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 more of a balance. Like uh, those three criteria, I mean, for a good. Um, it's a, it's a balance. It's the hmm. harmony of the three. If you go too heavy on Xin, then you lose the other parts. It's hmm. not going to work. Yeah. So in in some ways, even with that concept, it's it's a way of talking about balance. And so maybe that is a a, a nice bridge into our discussion today, since this whole chapter is about balance and and moderation first i'm going to reference chapter 67 of Tao Te Ching and the three treasures because of the three treasures moderation or balance is one of those three therefore it's one of the most important concepts in Taoism why do you think it's emphasized so much? I think it has a lot to do with the time uh, Lao Tzu lived in, and and perhaps, 
you know, his role as a, you know, a librarian or the uh, a person who keeps all the records in the imperial uh, archive during his lifetime. Uh, the time uh, he lived in was really like what uh, what we call the spring and autumn period uh, of the Chinese his, uh, his history. And during that time, the old order was disintegrated. The Zhou, the, 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 the Zhou, the Western Zhou dynasty. And uh, so a lot of the kings and rulers and, you know, they, they are all spreading over in different parts of China. And these rule, originally there was like a, a very shared uh, you know, shared uh, values um, during the Western Zhou. So everybody uh, obeys that. So there's the order. And and then during that period of time, that with the distinct integration of the Zhou, Western Zhou dynasty, uh, there was chaos. Part of chaos was, you know, people are not following the old values anymore. They just... Uh, you know, do did what they please, and they tried to grab, you know, the power, you know, from the the the, the vacuum, mm-hmm. and uh, they live a life of indulge, indulgence, you know. So, uh, so that's what Laozi was probably seeing during that time. And so, really relevant for today, at least in the United States. I mean, let's not kid ourselves that. Globally, in, indulgence is not common, but certainly in the United States, indulgence is quite common. And we're as you know the the major power in the world since World War II. The U.S. has basically been able to force the rest of the world to do largely its bidding and you know bring resources to the United States from around the world um, cheaply and and kind of exploit the weakness of other countries. And so indulgence is quite rampant in the United States. And so it, it certainly seems like moderation, a, a Taoist view of, of moderation is very applicable to our society that there's some parallels between the United States indulgence, the culture of indulgence and the indulgence of um, Western Joe. Yes, I agree. I, I think United States, you know, may be the latest version of that uh, human experience. If you look at throughout history, you look at the, uh, the cyclical nature of empires, more or less, each big empire, like the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Chinese Empire, all experienced something like that. At the start of the empire, mm-hmm. usually the founders, like, for example, the Western Zhou dynasty, uh, a, a very uh, important historical figure was Zhou Gong. Uh, you know, I remember reading a letter uh, he wrote to his son, who is going to be an official in one of the uh, uh, one of the localities? Actually, the locality where Confucius was born. So, what he what was he telling his son? Basically, to be moderate. 
you know, to be really think about more what he can do for the people there instead of like living in indulging life. So at the beginning of empires, uh, Roman Empire is, was very similar. You know, people uh, emphasize at that time, you know, some important virtues, you know, courage and and also, you know, the common, the what they call the um, uh, somebody with a general. I, I can't remember the exact word for that, but it's like a, the, the, somebody with a big soul, generosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have a word, um, mag, magnanimity, magnanimity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the, you know, um, the, the the virtues. But later on. You know, they, you know, people, especially the elites, got very uh, corrupted. And uh, then the gaps between the, the elites and the common people uh, were widened. And then the common people felt that they do not have a really uh, a sense of belonging or sense of ownership for that system they fought so hard for. So that ha- all happened in history. And... It- you could describe the United States the same way today. It's what led to the rise of Trump and eventually could lead to the rise of fascism in the United States. But as you pointed out, this is not unique to the United States. This is just a basic pattern of, of empires rising and falling. And we know w- once decadence arrives, once huge corruption and the the subsequent inequality that that corruption creates when essentially the system no longer works for the common people at all it only works for the elites and uh, whoever controls that system in the united states it's obviously corporations and the shareholders that run those corporations and that have subsequently um direct government officials and organizations, but it's the same situation. And so moderation is, is kind of really, uh, something that, that we would want the, the elites, the people running to subscribe to, but they certainly are not going to do that. They will continue to be, immoderate until the empire collapses, but we're not really talking to them because they, they're not listening to us anyway. We're really talking to the average person. So would you say that uh, modern society, and, and obviously we're a, a globally listened to podcast, at least that's what the statistics tell me. And so I also want to be mindful that we're not only speaking to people in um, Western countries, we're speaking to people in um, countries all around the world. But I think when, when we look at the dominant forces in the global economy, would you say that they encourage moderation or immoderation? Um, def- definitely uh, immoderation. Uh, reason being, really, the modern society seems to put 
you know, greater emphasis on the on materialism and consumerism uh, because that's what, you know, keeps the economy humming and also keeps the money coming in. I mean, that's all it's that that whole system. Mm-hmm. And uh, you end up like encouraging people to consume more. And then when they they need to consume more, they need to work harder. Uh, you know, it's on, like on a treadmill. Uh, yeah. And um, and interestingly, I think there at first there are so many things that you are not even conscious of, uh, you know. But nowadays, with social media, with you know, so it's so easy to know what's out there. So, for example, I think that, that creates a situation that you know people are constantly. Uh, checking with each other, compare with each other. Uh, and, and you know, they, let's say, at first, they only have a, a certain set of needs. You know, if we go back, way back, maybe very basic needs. Now there's this whole, you uh, know, whole explosion of wants, all kinds of wants. So and, and how how does that get created? How how do these artificial ones? How are those created? I think primarily through messaging, marketing, yeah. and and sales. There, you know, when I work as a consultant and with all these corporations, they invest a lot of time in studying the behaviors. You know, talking about you know the the social media now they use the algorithm. I think it's just an le- another level of figuring out the the desires of the consumers. In the old days, they had you know all the focus groups and 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 they're bringing consumers to understand their you know their their mindset, their lifestyle, and then they turn that into you know uh, customer segmentation and target those customers you know with advertising or all kinds of marketing, you know, venues and vehicles. So that's all how things were created from, you know, maybe uh, no awareness of the brand until the loyalty of the brand. So that's the gold grail Mm -hmm. from a consumer, from a commercial perspective. So you, so you have to know, let the, the non-users become users, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you do that? Well, if they don't know your brand, they don't know such a thing, they are not aware of those things, you need to make them aware. And then gradually, you know, through programs and, you know, uh, try to pull them so that, uh, you know, from away from the competitors so that they become, you know, uh, uh, you know, the brand become a preferred brand. But then on top of that, it becomes uh, you know, a brand that they, they, they pledge allegiance to. So those are the, you know, uh, I would say the basic foundation of the marketing, but then with the technology, it's just getting more and more efficient and savvier and savvier. So the, the in moderation really isn't about helping people. It, it's about convincing people 
to spend money on things that they otherwise wouldn't want or need, which is what keeps the economy going, which keeps the wealthy people who kind of run those marketing budgets and that sort of thing in their positions. I'm, yeah, I would say it's a combination of both. Uh, it has certain maybe a foundational needs uh, and uh, they are trying to, I think it, it, they do their own thing, but before they, for them, their thing to become effective, uh, they do a lot of research studying mm -hmm. the human nature, human behavior. Mm -hmm. So there, there's the seed there planted in all mm -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. Maybe like, you know, our desire for status, mm -hmm. our desire for beauty. So then they turn those basic ideas into all kinds of goods. So that's pretty much the the pathway. Uh, it, it, it's uh, I think uh, I'm not saying that they are only doing this for their own goods, but I think a lot of times they start to turn. Maybe the analogy uh, I can think of is the guinea pigs. Mm. You know, they turn consumers into guinea pigs. Mm. So the, in other words, our, you know, the consumers become powerless in mm -hmm. the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the end, end result is that the the weaknesses of the human heart, the those desires, they they're kind of laser focused to create a, a marketplace where you're you're constantly being encouraged to act on those desires. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think it's really interesting what you're saying. I think it's easy to get into this dichotomy or this kind of um, binary way of thinking about things that there's sort of different types of people, like the the powerful people and the weak people, and that you know the system is constructed to do evil against the poor, I think that's the consequence. But I think the thing is, is that we're really talking about a condition of the human heart where I think you could take anyone and make them a billionaire and they're probably going to act similarly to the billionaires that we have today and, and vice versa. If you took anyone from a... Um, like an ancient civilization and put them in modern times because of the condition of the human heart, they too are going to want all of the things that marketing is telling them about. And so, you know, I think politically we get in this idea that there's, you know, a class struggle and that there's, um, you know, kind of the the elites and the the common people, etc. But, but I think those are all arbitrary distinctions. What we're really talking about is the human heart, and this world that we have is a reflection of the human heart when those desires are not immoderate, when they're not moderated, when you know people want more and more, whether you have access to a marketplace that can give you 
all these goods and services, or if you're a wealthy person who recognizes, oh, I can get more and more money, etc. It, it, it's all a condition of the same thing, which is just the human condition. But kind of moving into the next part of the discussion, we know that there's some obvious ways that we practice moderation, like with how we eat and how we um, drink in our in our diet. But there's probably some not so obvious ways of practicing moderation. What are some other important areas for thinking about moderation that maybe we we take for granted? I think our you know expectations uh, of our own selves mm. and also our expectations of the world. Mm. Uh, by that I mean uh, we all know that we humans have you know a, a dualistic aspects. Uh, one is the physical we are a physical animal. I think that part you know it really involves you know the basic needs of you know you know being fed and mm. you know maybe uh, sheltered, uh, but I think it's the meaning-making part uh, that has a lot of potential. Uh, I think in there, you can argue that there's a lot of pot potentiality. I think somehow among those meaning-making possibilities, you know, one good way, because our life is short, so you cannot possibly make meanings in all aspects of life. So somehow we need to figure out what resonates with us, what feels important to us, you know, you know, then we are able to prioritize. That's the, I think that's the fundamental way of, you know, that's the probably the first step toward be moderate, because otherwise we'll be overwhelmed, and and also will create a mess of you know wants and desires for ourselves. So people say, oh, you know, you have to prioritize, but how do you prioritize, right? Mm. So you have to say, well, maybe this thing is important. Of course, you know your priorities are shifting all the time. But I feel like a lot of times as human beings, we seldom, uh, in fact, this new issue of the Harvard Business Review I just received uh, through mail is talking about the, the, the busyness trap. Hmm. Well, does that trap come from? It yeah. comes from, you know, our believing that busyness will lead to, you know, success or achievement, right? So what kind of achievement? So it's almost like we have to learn how to reverse engineer from our deep in our heart what it is, you know, that is important. Uh, of course, as a young person, you know, you and I maybe going back to our, let's say, the early 20s, we don't know. We just, you know, it's trying errors. And I, now we know better. I think a lot of people maybe... At a later age, they, they start to know better. Um, but during that time, I think a lot of people, it's so painful 
to unlearn a lot of things. And people just let the original inertia to just go on and on. But for some people, maybe they can start to sort out and prioritize. And then that, that, that's probably the path of moderation. Or in, in, in arithmetic terms, it's the subtraction of life and not addition mm-hmm. anymore. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Yeah, I I really think that there's a, a ton of insight in, in what you're saying about how to just say be moderate with your eating or be moderate with your sensory indulgences. It's too simplistic and it doesn't help people because it doesn't solve the problem of, well, why are people doing all that? Like what, why are they right. driven to in, engage in all of these sensory things? And it's because there isn't a deeper meaning driving what they're doing. And if they did, that's actually oddly enough, the thing that would moderate that behavior. Yeah. I, I would say just based on a lot of the uh, readings I've done, like about research you know, take overeating, for example, you know, binge eating, mm-hmm. uh, you know, according to a lot of the different scientific research is a lot of that is psychological. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's, a, it's more complex than that. It's genetic mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. But I bet yeah. a lot of because I experience it myself that sometimes when you feel anxious mm-hmm. and stressed, you want something to comfort you. Yeah. I mean. As simple as that. Mm-hmm. So, but instead of like turning in and try to figure out, oh, where does that strength, you know, look at this stress, you know, at its face. It, mm-hmm. it, I think it's like hard to do because you're looking into the, almost into the vacuum. So that's not a, you know, you have to, you know, practice mm-hmm. in order to really like figure out, okay, what that stress, you know, maybe through uh, mindfulness, you know, practice or other mm-hmm. kind of med- meditation or spiritual practices. But I think for most of the people, the easy way is to grab the food. <laughs> so that, yes. like, right. So, the, yeah. Yeah. And so what, what we're saying is, I mean, that, that word mindfulness, I, I try to let people know, you know, because that word has become so overloaded and people don't even know what it means anymore. Like what is this mindfulness thing is really describing to people. It's really about paying attention to your internal psychological states, your emotional states, paying attention to everything going on in the interior of your own nervous system of your own inner world so not just the sensory things that you're seeing but what are the connections between the thoughts that i'm having and what i'm experiencing how are those thoughts then creating um or reinforcing beliefs about the world that maybe aren't true but it's really about cultivating more psychological mindedness that's what I mean by mindfulness. It's, it's actually like analyzing and studying 
our own thoughts and and emotions and beliefs from uh, a non-judgmental way so that we can understand and, and cultivate insight into why we act the way that we act or why we show up in the world the way that we show up, that's a lot more difficult and takes a lot more time than just, you know, I love food too, than, than just like, hey, I'm going to go eat a bunch of sugary foods or fattening foods that release a lot of dopamine, but doesn't get me anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when you're talking about even moderation with our expectations, expectations that to develop moderation in the ways that we're talking about, that takes time. It takes effort. It's not, um, a quick fix. It's not a, um, an overnight sort of thing that it's an ongoing process. And so just like with, you know, the walking the timeless way, it's an effortful thing that, that we try to engage in throughout the day, every day. It's not just, a Oh, um, you know, I call myself a, a Taoist or whatever, and now all, all of these problems are solved. So the these expectations, if we apply it to being balanced, what's a realistic way to even do that? What's a realistic way to live a balanced life, knowing that there's all these environmental pressures acting on us constantly. We have our own physical body that we're not necessarily completely in control of, our own emotions that we're not necessarily in complete control of, other people that we're not in control of. What's realistic? That's a great question. Um, what I can think of is, well, first of all, you know, the awareness of it. You know, I think a lot of people are not even aware of what we are talking about, what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. so, but how do you translate that awareness into, you know, as you know, a way of living? I think there are some key elements in there. Uh, one is your relationship with the kind of the, the environment because we are not living like a hermit. <laughs> we're mm. not living in a vacuum. Mm -mm. We're not living in a bubble. So, you know, I, I think Lao Tzu actually talked about like we live like, like as a dust, like a, almost like in the dust, right? Mm -hmm. We live oh, yeah, in, the, totally. in the So we're dust with consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that is the, the kind of the, the the environment we live in. So I think to formulate a healthy relationship with our environment is a key key one. But what does it mean to be a healthy relationship? I would say a relationship that is interconnected 
but there's a kind of a distance too. So it's again, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's it's both, both end. Uh, you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, we cannot totally like renounce from the world. I mean, other people, there are certain people who choose that path, you know, as a spiritual practice or mm -hmm. as a part of the religion. But for most people, I think you operate in the real in the world. Uh, yes. So we have to acknowledge that fact. And that's part part of being realistic, yeah. uh, instead of uh, idealistic, right? Mm -hmm. But then I think the key there is really how do you create that that distance, or create that kind of independence within that interdependence? Let's say mm -hmm. I think that's the. That's, that is the really the, the part that requires uh, thinking and practice. Yeah, the, I think the interdependence part is, is key, which is looking at how we are just part of the environment that, you know, mm -hmm. capitalism is, loves when people see themselves as individuals because now you can sell people one of each of everything, right? Like instead of a hundred people sharing a washing machine, you get the washing machine in every single house because, you know, why would you let your neighbor across the hall use your washing machine? That would be stupid. I mean, that's the kind of belief system that, that has been created through marketing and, and consumerism getting people to not see their interdependence or those relationships. And so that is one major reason why we are immoderate because we see ourselves as separate from everything. We see ourselves as separate from every other person, from, you know, whatever's happening outside. And so that interdependence, that's one way of, of helping ourselves to figure out that balance more. It's like, my actions don't just affect me. It affects the people who live in the house with me. It affects my community. If I'm purchasing things from a marketplace that is global, the things that I purchase also affects the world. It affects the, the people who are anywhere in this supply chain from, you know, a farmer in you know, a, a, a developing world to the, the worker in some other country that's that's putting it together all the way, you know, until it's shipped and, and marketed in, you know, some industrialized modern society. And so that's that that understanding that I, I'm not an individual. Yes, I have a separate nervous system. I do. Ha I am a unique organism, but that organism is situated within an environment, and we're not separate from it. We're embedded in it. We are part right. of that environment. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah, and that's what Taoism is really talking about. It's that looking at the holistic system, not 
the dualistic system or the dual way of thinking of individual versus Mm -hmm. nature, but that, no, it is one thing. It's Tao in that we function within Tao and we're part of that. And so our actions have consequences and how we interact with the environment is going to have consequences on ourselves and the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frankly, I I feel that concept of uh, inner interconnectivity uh, or interdependence is becoming more and more foreign to us mm. living in modern days because that's not the first instinct people mm-hmm. think. The first instinct is me, me, me. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So... As long as I'm satisfied, as long as I'm happy, as long as I feel good, uh, you know. Of course, you know you you don't do, uh, you know, uh, according to the, you know. Uh, I, I think we're living in a time which was the result of the enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. So the enlightenment key concept is about social contract and rights and all those. Uh, I think people fail to realize that even beyond those legal rights and boundaries, mm-hmm. we are still connected very deeply, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Even though like legally you're you're doing everything fine, you, yeah. you're not violating any law, yeah. but I think our behaviors have much more profound uh, you know, consequences and impact on the people and things and environment around us that is not that that defies the definition of legal terms yeah it's not just rights it's it's responsibilities and i think that's why i was it it just kind of hit me all of a sudden when we were talking why in lao tzu's three treasures the other one about not putting yourself first it's actually very tied to moderation that when we're being selfish, that's also probably when we're being more immoderate and by default, not we're putting ourselves first. And that's the genius in those three treasures that one helps with the other. It's like, okay, well, if I don't put myself first, I'm probably also being moderate. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, which leads to another uh, thought I, you know, I want to bring up, uh, getting back to our discussion about how do you realistically achieve that balance. I think I have a thought around being able to say no to mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in our, in our day and age, I, fe- I find that uh, somehow we just don't want to say no. And also, we are also fearful of, you know, fearful of missing the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, that notion of FOMO, right? Yeah. Fear of missing out. Yeah. Right? That's another example of mm-hmm. saying no to things. We just feel like, oh, you know, what am I missing? Right? So when I think about this ability, saying no, I also think about if we're not co- clear about what we say yes, of course, or everything that comes along 
we're saying yes to. So that's the, the no and yes, they coexist. They, <laughs> they, they, they almost interact yep. with each other. So in other words, let's say we're becoming using one of the tra three treasures about, uh, I think the first is compassion, right? Mm -hmm. Compassion. So if we have somehow we cultivate a compassion, let's say for people who are still, you know, it's not like doing that as kind of virtual singling or yeah. charitable endeavor, just like feel about those people who are still, you know, not uh, still starving, right? Yep. So for that kind of compassion, then you may, we, we may just naturally reduce our level assumption and, and channel that, you know, to that yes, we're saying to. But, you know, we're not doing that. So these things, I, I sort of feel like somehow each individual needs to be clear. I mean, compassion is one of those things you can say yes mm -hmm. to. But then it, the clearer we are in terms of what our yes is, and then the more decisive we can be in saying no to a lot of things. Those two things depend on each other. Completely. And it, and it goes back to your initial point about what gives us meaning, because if you don't know what gives you meaning, and if you don't know what you want your life to be about and what you want to stand for, you will be vulnerable to every advertisement, marketing pressure that tells you that, hey, buying this thing or consuming this thing, that's what's going to give your life meaning. And if you, if you know what you stand for and you know what your life is supposed to be about and you know how to not put yourself first in the way that matters to you, you will be able to say no to that thing because you will know, actually, that's not what gives my life meaning. Something else gives my life meaning, and that's not. Yeah, it. yeah. Isn't that the, the 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 logic? I think the logic is running something like this, but then that leads to a question: Why don't we know? Uh, you know, I have some you know hypothesis about that. I feel like some people, since they are born, I mean, this is just like a pure observation yeah. uh, that. Some people seem to know from the very start or know mm -hmm. earlier or know more clearly mm -hmm. than the rest of us. Uh, you know, I don't know whether, you know, they they were, you know, they had a, let's say, using the uh, Buddhist uh, karmic migration, like they have a soul from their early life. So they are born in this body. I, I don't know. That's, you know, I'm, I'm just... Yeah. Using that analogy. For whatever reason, but some people seem to. Whatever have. reason, they know what they want. But I feel like a lot of people, they really don't know what they want. That's the. the, the so they, then they become vulnerable and mm -hmm. all the external things will come to them. They just go and, and chase whatever that appeals them to them at that moment. I think that's the problem that I see on a wide on a wide scale yeah with, with, without a doubt because even and i think that's that's the thing that i'm certainly always wanting to be careful of and what we're doing just because we talk about this being a taoist podcast but 
when you look at how a lot of religious people have used religion to try to give vulnerable people meaning, but then at the same time, you know, those people are flying private jets and living in really expensive mm-hmm. mansions. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like they're actually looking for a spiritual practice, but more selling people meaning rather than honestly trying to get them to think about their own tastes, wants, values, and determining for themselves their own path. Because Taoism is about walking a path and each person has to walk their own path. Like if I tell you to walk a path like how I walked mine, it's not going to work because the things that I experienced growing up and where I lived and, and who I am is different than you. And so if I say, Hey, walk your path like this, that's not going to work for you. What we're really trying to talk about is getting people to think deeply and reflect on themselves and their own configuration of their lives where they're at. And, and each person has to figure out how to live moderation wherever they are, because we're all in different places. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, what you're saying reminds me of uh, an idea that I picked up from, you know, Becker's, you know, denials yeah. of death. Yeah. Uh, he observed that the reason that we human beings want to build up all the, the followings, whether religious followings or spiritual followings or political followings or economic followings, mm-hmm. is that, again, going back to that meaning-making aspects of, uh, of human beings. Because all, you know, except for the, the certainty that as a physical being, we need to eat, right? Yep. We need to get energy. The rest of it is just creativity, right? Yep. It's making meanings. Yeah. But the meanings you know, has all kinds of, you know, five colors, you know, maybe five sounds. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's, it's endless. Yeah. Infinite meaning yeah. making. I think a lot of times what I see that as establishment or institutions, their ability is to create the numbers. Why? Because we do not know the ultimate meaning. So we use the quantity to say, hey, look at this mega church. Oh, hey, look at this, uh, you know, this, this base of a political, political, a particular political leader, and then use that number to attract, and almost sounding as if that that meaning means something because of the very sheer number. So that's the how I see in the real world how things work. Well, David, I've really enjoyed our discussion today, and obviously we we could keep continuing to talk about this, and and we'll certainly bring up moderation and other discussions, but we've run out of time for today. So thank you for your insights on this chapter and on moderation in general. If you want to um, join us at walkingthetimelessway.com, 
We have other articles there. We also have a button at the top of the screen. If you want to support the podcast, we, we still pay out of our own pockets to keep this going. We do want to thank Anthony for making a contribution on the website to help us cover some of our costs. And please reach out to us anytime through the website. We have a form where you can ask us questions. We enjoy getting questions from the listeners. Feel free to send us your reactions, any ideas that you have for um, guests or or um, topics. We're, we're always open to hearing from you. So take care of yourselves and keep walking the timeless way. <laughs>